Welcome to Food Friday Leftovers. A podcast about all the goodies left over from Food Friday. I'm Dave Hopper. And I'm Ashley Kinsey. Tune in each week as we cover culinary topics such as food trucks, local food, pizza, veggies, beer, and wine. You hungry yet? Huh, I'm always hungry. Well, on that note, Ashley, tell us what's in the fridge this week. We are actually not in the fridge. We are debunking food myths with Bruce Weinstein and Mark Scarborough today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having us. Okay, so I asked you outside what was a myth that you guys wanted to talk about that wasn't on our Vox Pop program, which you can listen to the podcast on WMCpodcast.org. And you guys said? Well, my favorite thing is the, you hear it all the time for people, don't ever wash your mushrooms. Don't. That is a myth. Wash your mushrooms because <laughs> where do they grow? They grow in poop. Yeah, base. <laughs> Commercially grown mushrooms often grow in the polite word used is soil, <laughs> and um, it has a soil component to it. You re- It's a very rich, composty soil. Yeah. It's got a lot of stuff you want to wash. Yeah, off. it's got a lot of stuff that makes for good mushrooms. Yeah, but good for the plants. Yeah, you can leave great it there. for the plants. And but... what I hear, though, I was just, yeah, but then they get all soggy and wet, and my answer to that is you're cooking it, right? You're going to put it in a skillet with some butter and olive oil, and then what's going to happen? You're going to get all the liquid out of it, and you're going to let it evaporate, and there goes all the sogginess. Come yeah, bye. That's right. That's that's basically it. For all you mushroom eaters, yeah, <laughs> start washing. Start, yeah, yeah, wash. Yes. Wa- wash. Do not use a damp towel. <laughs> if somebody tells you to wipe it off with a towel, don't oh, no. eat at their house. No, that's like that's like <laughs> using a wet wipe on your mushrooms. It's not going to work. <laughs> Why are all your mushrooms at the side of your plate? <laughs> <laughs> The, and then there's another one. Mark, you were talking about the baking myth. Uh, yeah, you yeah. know, there are a million recipes out there that are written, uh, baking recipes that say uh, eight tablespoons, one stick butter at room temperature with two eggs or whatever. That's just so totally false. It can't be more false. No. You need butter that is cool. Well, we don't need to know exact temperature, but let's say you take it out of the refrigerator and you cut it into little sections and you put it in your mixing bowl and you gather your other ingredients and then you go. It needs to be cool because it needs to build structure. Warm butter, room temperature butter is good spread on bread. As I mm-hmm. always say in cooking classes when we teach, I always say room temperature butter is like people on cruise ships. They kind of spread out <laughs> in the heat, you know, and they get all soggy and spread out. You don't want soggy. You want people that are you know, in the Arctic that are nice and tight because <laughs> they're cold and that will build better structure because the, the question of building structure in a batter is beating air into fat structures. Yeah. So. so when you're creaming butter and sugar, you want to have the cool butter. And people always say, you know, when, do you have any questions about cooking? One of the big ones is often, well, when I bake cookies, they're really thin. And how do I get my cookies thicker? And so Mark and I always start with them. Well, is your butter at room temperature or cold when you cream it with the sugar? And they always say, well, it's at room temperature like the recipe says. And we're like, that's Mm -hmm. your problem. Now, but there's a reason why recipes have been written to say with butter at room temperature. Well, yeah, because in the 60s, stand mixers were largely replaced with handheld mixers like my mom had, you know, the handheld mixer. And those mixers are not powerful enough to handle colder butter and that's why the whole thing started happening there was a huge thing published in the new york times a while back about how to make the best chocolate chip cookies and basically it took that old recipe 
of room temperature butter and you made it, but then you put the whole thing in the refrigerator, it said overnight, and then you made the cookies out of it. Well, basically, you're helping the cookie not spread by re-solidifying the butter, but you're still not getting a proper amount of air beaten into your batter. So cool butter will make for much better cookies. Yeah, and cakes. Yeah, I'm going to suggest this to my wife at some point and just slide into, oh, I found a new way to make chocolate chip cookies. Yeah, Why don't you try you, it? You're also <laughs> going to have to buy our stand mixer that can handle <laughs> colder butter that is powerful enough to torque it up and get it going. So they used to have those beforehand. They would have... Well, stand mixers were kind of the big thing, yeah. And then yeah. the hand mixer came in. Even my grandmother, when I was a little kid, she had her her mixer had a big glass bowl and it wasn't it wasn't as powerful as like the new KitchenAid mixers with the big paddle but it was still a stand mixer and it could handle it and it was a deep bowl and the butter would not go flying out if you take cold butter in little bits with some sugar in a mixing bowl and you put a hand mixer in it you're going to be cleaning butter off of your counters <laughs> right. on the top of your cabinets and your, your windowsills it's going to fly everywhere <laughs> that just doesn't happen in a stand right. mixer so yeah huh. those the hand mixers came in in the 60s and 70s as big kitchen convenience Brady Bunchy kind of stuff and so recipes had to be changed to accommodate that but we all suffered with thinner cookies <laughs> <laughs> so the cheat to get around it is to put the batter back in the fridge just you to, could do that as good as possible yeah, yeah. it's a cheat it is a cheat <laughs> the, the cheat around it is to buy yourself a stand mixer <laughs> <laughs> get the right equipment and you'll cook much better yeah, no cheating on this program well, what you could do, I guess if you didn't have a stand mixer and you didn't want to buy a stand mixer, you could chop up the butter really yes. fine, right? Yes. If it's really yes. cold, which That's kind it. of leads me to my next myth, the santoku knives, okay. right? Yeah, okay. with the little so, ridges along the edges. Yeah, so are they really worth it? What they do that I like is that you sometimes you know you're cutting something and things stick to the side of the knife. That doesn't happen with those knives because those little indentations down the side, um, there's no suction created between like your onion slices. And so things fall off easier. Are they worth the extra money? Sometimes. I mean, it depends how much of that is a problem for you. There are lots of high-end knives that have texture now on the sides mm -hmm. um, that, will, idea, right? that, that will avoid that problem. But that's, that's what their whole thing was, was to keep vegetables from sticking to the side of the knife as you cut them. I mean, the old remedy for that is to spray the knife with nonstick spray. Well, there you could do some that Some people, too. not baking spray, but just nonstick yeah. spray. And the difference, as Mark said, between baking spray and nonstick spray, baking spray has flour in it. Right. And you mm -hmm. use that when you're baking. Um, nonstick spray does not have flour it's just in it. just oil. And th there is an old trick for, like, cutting chicken that you spray the blade of your knife with nonstick spray. I mean, it does work. Sure. I'm surprised there was no talk of losing digits in this conversation. Oh, no, not yet. <laughs> That's not all yet. about onions. <laughs> not yet. We can talk about it. <laughs> so searing meat to keep the juices in is another one I keep seeing coming up a lot. Well, <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite steak is charred as charred as it could be on the outside and juicy rare in the middle. So I have seared the outside. But that's not to keep those juices in. That's just to give me a lovely crunch on the outside. Right. You can't keep the juices in by searing it. Because let's say I sear the outside really good, but now I have to make this well done for somebody who likes well done. <laughs> yeah. Well, where'd the juices go? They get out anyway. You're not painting right. it with epoxy. 
And you serve a hockey puck. <laughs> and you do serve a hockey puck. And in fact, if you do the physics on it, when you really sear a steak, even when you make it rare inside, when you sear a steak, you basically dehydrate it almost to nothingness on the edges if you really sear it. And what people experience as juiciness in the steak generally is their own salivating to the steak because as the steak approaches your mouth you begin to salivate for that piece and you will experience it as actually juicier than it is and that's why people who love well done steak like really love it Ugh. can actually tell you it's, <laughs> it doesn't taste dry Ugh. because to them that is making them salivate so much that they're experiencing a juicy steak but yeah, no. the juice is not coming from the steak Right. I'm no, with you. no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, I mean, I want to. I I like steak so that <laughs> a good vet could save the cow. <laughs> if it, if it came in. So that's how I like it. But again, even with me, the function of juiciness is often a function of my salivating in the face of the meat. But let's just say, no matter how you're going to eat it, rare or medium or uh, well done, <laughs> sear it, sear it, sear it, because there is nothing like a good crusty char on the outside right. of steak. If right. you're just graying your meat, cooking it over low heat till it's gray, oh. that's really not very pleasant. No. no. No, I feel like it's just a waste of money. If you're going to yeah, go all out for a steak, you might as well do it yeah. right. Yeah. So now that we've talked about the main event, the steak, let's talk about the side dish. Sure. Um, so I've heard some varying things about pasta. There are people out there that rinse their pasta and rinse their rice. I'm not one of them, but I don't know. Is Are you supposed to be doing pre -cooking that? Pre-cooking or post-cooking? <laughs> yeah, that was the question. Rinsing rice pre-cooking or rinsing it post-cooking? Pre-cooking? Pre-cooking. <laughs> that's an old, <laughs> let me tell you, that's a hangover from my great-grandmother's days. In the old, in the old days <laughs> when my grandmother was around, she uh, rice was often coated in talc for long shipment. And okay. you rinsed it to get rid of the talc. Some rice that still comes from certain Asian countries can still have talc. Or powdered melamine. And or... if the bag what says What are these countries? It, <laughs> we know the one. It's our large trading partner in, in Asia. And um, okay. if uh, the bag says on the, in the U.S. to rinse it, rinse it. And sometimes they'll even say talc-coated rice, mm. sometimes on the bag. And they do that for long shipment to preserve the grains and preserve moisture and yada, yada, yada. And it works, but you have to rinse it. If you're talking about post-cooking, I've heard but, that with pasta. Wait, but, but most rice that you would yeah. buy at any supermarket in mm. the United States without going to an Asian store does not need to be rinsed. No. Now, the second thing is people rinse rice because they pull it out of bulk bins. And they don't know whose hands have been in that bin before mm -hmm. their hands were in that bin. That makes sense. Let me just say, no pest was ever killed with water. Yeah, exactly. Pests are killed by heat. So if mm -hmm. there is if there's some contamination in there, you're going to kill it by cooking it anyway. You're going to have to cook yeah. it. But uh, now you talked about rinsing pasta. I I can't imagine what the reason to rinse raw pasta would be. Well, for rice, I'd say pre-cooked, yeah. but for pasta, post. So the, what you're doing when you rinse pasta after you drain it is you're getting rid of any starch that leached into the water, right, that which then coats the outside of the pasta, which makes it fantastic for holding sauce. Well, isn't that what you want? That is what yeah. you want. So okay. rinsing pasta after you cook it will do a couple of things. It'll keep the pasta from sticking to itself, which a lot of people like. So you put the pasta in a colander, and then you go to make the sauce, and then 10 minutes later you go to pull it out of the colander, you got a big wad of pasta. Well... Yes, rinsing it will keep that from happening, but then you're losing all that lovely texture. So the answer is cook the sauce first, 
then cook the pasta so that you're ready to eat once the pasta's done. Yeah, right. And there are certain pasta salads that are better if you rinse the pasta, certain corny, mayonnaise And there we're talking about cold pasta, too. We're right. not talking about hot. But if you're going to eat a nice bowl of hot pasta in some kind of sauce, you'll do better not to rinse Just it. Just spaghetti marinara. Yeah. Right. Okay. I was doing it right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm um, cooking with alcohol. Does it burn off totally? Well, that is is such a no-no. I don't know where that one got started, but no. In fact, alcohol, we're talking ethanol here. And the ethanol in anything from vodka to wine does not cook off at a four and a half hour braise. Four and a half hours. I don't know what you're braising for four and a half hours, but a four and a half hour <laughs> oven braise of, let's say, you know, beef chuck or pork shoulder, and you put some wine in it or rum or whatever you're putting in it to flavor it, you still have a little under 5% residual alcohol at that point. Which is not much, but, but if you are cooking for someone who has an ethanol allergy, then you can't give it to but them. If, if you're you, cooking for someone who just is off of alcohol, you need to tell them because they, they need to make that decision. Don't so make it for them. we shouldn't feed our children pasta oh, sauce with yeah. red wine. Let's wow. see. That's, that, the <laughs> amount of alcohol. Let's, let's say you have a big pot it's of pasta sauce. It's all your parenting choices. That, <laughs> let's say you made a pot that's two quarts or four cups of sauce, and in that you put a quarter cup or half a cup of wine. The amount of alcohol in that wine is not that much diluted over four cups, and then you are losing some of it in the cooking. So there's some alcohol left, but yeah. I personally would feed it to if my you, kids if I had kids. But if you deglaze a pan with wine, you know, you pour the wine in the pan, and you made chicken breast, I don't know, and you pour some white wine in there, and it's like a one-minute deglaze. You know, mm-hmm. you scrape up, up the stuff. And you pull it out. You're still talking 80 to 90% residual al- wow. ethanol in the pan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so a wine sauce like that has quite a bit of the original alcohol still in it. I, I don't know that I would feed that to a five-year-old. I don't know that I wouldn't feed that to a 10-year-old. But that, I, that strikes me as your parenting ethic choices. Right. Yeah, we've definitely made sauce. My mom grows tomatoes, and I've made sauce, and I put a glass of wine in yep. my sauce. But it's a huge thing of sauce, yeah. so I feel I feel okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're good. I think I it's think okay. Because I batch it, and then I freeze some. Yeah, I think it's good. Right, okay. I, but I think Bruce is right. The ethics are that you're having, if you're having someone over for dinner, you are mm-hmm. obligated to tell them what's about to happen and let them make that decision on their own. What is about to happen? <laughs> <laughs> You're about to serve them something that was cooked with alcohol and let them decide. Yeah, let because, them you decide. know, we've had friends over the years who have given up alcohol for various reasons. And so when I cook with alcohol or if I'm going to, I call them first and say, look, if I make this beef stew and I need to throw a, a bottle of beer in it, will you be able to eat it? And some have said yes and some have said I'd rather you didn't. So, I remember yeah. it's always it's the ethanol that's the problem. It's no other compound in wine, beer, it's ethanol we're talking about. That's here. the alcohol, right? I have a favorite candy that gets sold in the in Canada and the UK called wine gums. There's mm-hmm. little candies, mm, I know but those. they can't be sold in the US. Is there like a limit to the amount of alcohol or something? Uh, that I actually don't know the answer. I know that candy, um, and I did not actually did not know that they were banned here. That you couldn't get Where them. Where can yeah. we procure this candy? Uh, well, if you want to go to the board, they're at the duty free shop in uh, huge boxes. Uh, oh, hey! And my guess is, if you go like to Amazon UK, yeah. there you go. They'll ship yeah, anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
You can get them if you want. They're not, not that, that strict, we would be but... encouraging illegal activity <laughs> <laughs> or anything that would get ATF called to our houses or border anything. running for wine gum. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> oh my goodness. I have a question about onions and oh, there was some talk there. about onions in the Vox Pop episode, but as far as caramelizing onions, mm-hmm. you're not actually caramelizing yeah, them. Yeah, you are. You're you caramelizing are. the sugar in the onions. Onions are very high in sugar. And so as you cook them for a long time and they soften, the sugars come out and then over the long, slow heat, those sugars caramelize and turn brown and very sweet. And so it has to be a lower heat for a long period of time? That's one way to do it. You could do a higher heat for a shorter period of time, but you have to stir constantly because then you're going to you're gonna burning, have to balance right? burning versus caramelizing. Okay. Right. Charring is definitely a different matter. Yes. You get little burned onion bits. It's, def- it's definitely another matter. If you want just that ultra-sweet, rich caramelized, that's a lower heat for a longer period of and, time. And often it's with a little water added and a lid on and then you I start the that way because then the water, as Mark said, the water so helps soften them at the beginning of the cooking. You could do that for like 15 minutes and take the lid off, then start stirring. And you're talking maybe even another hour on a low heat to get all that water to now evaporate and then the sugars to start caramelizing. But that's if you want to make onion soup, we'll put great caramelized onions on a burger. That's, that's the way to do and it. And they're super sweet. Yeah. Good to know. You guys started talking about a funny story on the Fox Pop. I don't know if you want to finish it or pick another one. I'm not sure which, which one, one you're talking about. Remind the Fox us. and the Friends appearance. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We had ju- it was just one of our early TV appearances, and we'd been out late with friends. We- it was just very late with friends, and it was like, well, the car's coming to get us in an hour, we and were, we're still out at this we bar. Were at, <laughs> we went out to dinner with friends. The whole story is we went out to dinner with friends. And, you know, these early morning shows are on very, you know, your call is very early. And we were out to dinner with friends, and we finished dinner, and we had a, a significant amount of wine. We're living in the city. We're going to walk back to our apartment. And so um, she said, my friend is opening a nightclub. And they're having a soft opening this weekend, so why don't we just go to my friend's nightclub? Well, we did. We walked over to her friend's nightclub. Well, you know, I mean, it's a soft opening, so all the booze is free, and it's just flowing. And so... We had a couple more bottles of champagne. Oh, my gosh. And we walked home, and the car was coming at 6 a.m., and And it's now 2 in the morning. Oh, boy. And so... Did you go to sleep, or did you just stay No, I think I tried to go to sleep, but I do remember we arrived on set. God, I can't believe I'm telling this. We arrived (laughs) on set, and the food stylist said, can I get you anything? And all I can remember is saying, water. I need water. I need water right now, and I need a lot of water. So maybe maybe that's the only way I could ever be on Fox. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on Fox, a little bit inebriated. <laughs> oh, God. That was good. <laughs> Thanks, you guys, for being on no, again. It's our pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. That was Bruce Weinstein and Mark Scarborough, noted cookbook authors. This has been Food Friday Leftovers. I'm Ashley Kinsey. And I'm Dave Hopper. Be sure to check out Vox Pop Food Friday every Friday at 2 p.m. on WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our producer is Jessica Blaustein-Marshall. Our theme is Beach Disco by Dougie Wood. Food Friday Leftovers is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. And tune in next week to see what else we find in the fridge.